I'm not the big man on campus, a master ghost chomper, or even lizard king, whatever that means. I'm just a schnook. Hi, everybody. This is chapter 10 of Autobiography of a Schnook. And this is your host, Sean, a schnook. And, hmm, I trying to, this is the hard part of the podcast, trying to come up with some kind of a preamble. Uh, it's not scripted at all because I never know what to say, but here I am. Sorry for the lateness of this particular episode. Um, I was about to record the intros, the transitions and everything. And then I came down with some really nasty bug or some hyper allergies or something. And I was all stuffed up and I couldn't talk very well. And it would have sounded like this. In fact, you might still hear a little bit of that, but I feel better. I can breathe better. Had a really good night's sleep. And as I record this, we're finally getting some warm summer weather here in Chicago. We got the air conditioning on. You might hear that humming in the background. Maybe you won't. And I realize there are some uh, problems with chapter nine with that episode. For one thing, I never did put the show notes on the website at schnookpodcast.com. I apologize. Maybe I'll get around to doing that. I don't believe this episode is going to have any show notes, actually. There's nothing really external that um, would necessarily be helpful, I don't think. But also in the previous episode, I have to kind of uh, make a couple of corrections. Uh, first of all, I contradicted myself. At one point, I said that I learned how to play guitar in 1988, and then later in the episode, I said 1987. Uh, it was actually 1988. Uh, I, I realize I made a similar mistake in an earlier episode when I mentioned my brother Jay, who sadly died when he was a baby before I was born. Um, I think I mentioned that he died in 1968. No, it was actually 1967, but wow. And I actually listened to these before I release them too. I edit them. I fix them. But when it's just a one person operation, you don't have that extra oversight. There is something weird that happened. There was some kind of a audio glitch that happened in the previous episode too. When I was talking about the Indians of all nations, I believe that was the name of the group and how they occupied Alcatraz Island. I talked about the gravity on the prison walls and on the water tower um, actually, I really said graffiti, graffiti. There was just a uh, audio glitch or something. <clears throat> so yeah, uh, sorry about that. I'm going to try to use better software from now on. But in the meantime, I guess I really don't have a heck of a lot to say. So I'm just going to get right into this episode, which will contain three segments. And the first segment, uh, I should say that I usually script the episodes, but this next segment is not really scripted, but it's something that I saw going around on Facebook. A lot of my Facebook friends were sharing it and I figured why not use this? It's kind of autobiographical. And the opening sentence in the post was it's graduation season. Let's talk about your senior year in high school. The longer ago it was, the more fun the answers will be. The reason that this is a segment on my podcast is that I can't just answer the questions. I have to explain things. 
because that's who I am. That's how, that's what I do. That's how I roll. So we're going to talk about this schnook's senior year, Sean's senior year at Joliet Catholic Academy. So here's how the title reads. Well, if you want to call it a title, it's graduation season. Let's talk about your senior year in high school, because seniors in all caps, so you have to give it that kind of emphasis. The longer ago it was, the more fun the answers will be. Let's see how fun my answers are going to be. Jeez, my boring life back then. See, my class, uh, that's the first thing. My class was 1992, Joliet Catholic High School I went to from 1988 to 1990. All-boys school merged with the all-girls school, and the two schools became Joliet Catholic Academy. So from 1990 to 1992, that's where I went. So usually to explain it to people, I just say, oh yeah, I went to Joliet Catholic. Question one, did you know your spouse? That uh, No. I lived in Joliet, about 35-ish miles southwest of Chicago. My spouse lived in Neptune, New Jersey, so no, we, we wouldn't have known each other. Lisa was class of 1990. If she knew me then, she wouldn't be my spouse right now. She wouldn't have been caught dead with somebody from the class of 92. Seniors just didn't hang around with sophomores. She went to one of those schools where high school was sophomore year through senior year, and your freshman year was considered your last year of middle school, and it was actually an honor to be a freshman. Question two, what did you drive? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't get my driver's license till I was 17, actually, till January of my senior year. No reason, really. I just didn't go through driver's ed until then. One thing I should make clear, at least in the state of Illinois, it technically, at least back then, I don't know about now, Technically, the minimum driving age was 18, with the exception if you took a driver's ed course. Then you could get a license at 16, but other than that, 18. But yeah, I had a license when I was 17. My parents, though, especially my mother, rarely ever let me drive. And I was never allowed to drive ever, unless one of them was present at the time. So I drove nothing. I knew a lot of kids who had their own cars. Well, not this guy, not this guy, because number one, my parents weren't rich, and number two, because I wasn't rich. <laughs> I worked at a public library. I didn't make a lot of money. I didn't make enough money to buy a car. So, yeah, usually my dad dropped me off at school and picked me up. Oh, where did you work? Question number three. I just answered that, I believe. Joliet Public Library. I was a library page, which is basically the uh, person who puts, well, one of the people who puts books back on the shelf when they're returned, or if someone takes out a book and just leaves it at a table or something, we put it back, we keep the shelves in order. And uh, I was there for seven years, too. I became a clerk assistant, which is basically um, a page who's been there a while and makes a little bit more money. So uh, I loved that job so much, too. I learned so much on the job there. It was so cool, so cool. Where did you live? Question number four. Joliet said that before. I had to say it again, apparently. Question number five, were you popular? I don't know. It depends on how you define popular. I was not <laughs> among, like, say, the popular crowd. 
wasn't on the homecoming court. I was a nerd. What was? Yeah, I was, I was a nerd and I hung around like-minded people. But what's weird though, I mean, I didn't think I really was all that popular, but a couple of years ago we had our 25th year reunion. I hate when people say 25th reunion, because to me that means you reunited 25 times, but this was our 25th year reunion. And I was talking to people who were like, hey, Sean, why aren't you wearing a name tag? Everybody else is. So I went over to my former classmate who was distributing name tags, and I, I don't remember who it was. Uh, I, I remember her name and everything. I just don't remember who was the one who was doing it. Uh, but I went to get a name tag, and she told me, oh, honestly, Sean, everybody knows who you are. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Question six, were you in the choir? Lord, no. Lord, no. And I'm sure that my classmates are thankful that I wasn't in the choir. I had a lot of friends in the choir, but that's about it. Question number seven, ever get suspended from school? No, not at all. I never did anything wrong, really. I had no reason to do anything wrong. I had reasons to not do anything wrong. I didn't like getting in trouble. And if I did get in trouble, I'm sure my parents, especially my mom, would have threatened to pull me out of that school and send me to the public school. Because Joliet, at least back then, possibly still now, had a crappy public school system. But my parents' attitude was, if we're going to be spending all this money to put you through school, you better damn well do your best, not do anything wrong, because if you do, we're pulling you out of there. Question number eight, if you could go back, would you? That's kind of a loaded question. For one thing, the friends I had in high school, to this day, I count among my best friends, and I wouldn't give that up for the world, but having said that, I would not want to relive those years, ever. I hate school. I always did. I hated being in school, having to have that obligation, sitting in a classroom all day, memorizing useless facts, being tested on useless facts. I didn't like having that stress. No way. My dad always told me, oh, just wait, someday you're going to wish you were back in school. I'm 44 years old. Not a day goes by that I wish I were back in school. Never, ever. I'm legally an adult now. I can do whatever I want. All I got to do is pay my bills. That's the only real requirement that I have. Got to pay my bills and got to do what it takes to make sure I pay those bills. I much rather would go to a nine to five job five days a week and get paid for my hard work than have to deal with going to school on godly early in the morning, spending all day there, spending my days at home trying to finish homework, trying to do research projects on topics that I don't give a damn about. Hell no. Question number nine. Still talk to the person that you went to prom with? <laughs> I did not go to prom. And honestly, I did not want to. For one thing, prom was expensive. I didn't have a lot of money. The amount of money that I heard most kids were dropping on prom was every single cent that I had in savings from my job. I wasn't going to give all that up in one night. And also, I know this is a dumb reason, but early in the morning, the day after prom, I had to take an AP test. I had to be at school at like 7. There was no way in hell that I was going to go out to prom, be up all night, and then worry about having to take a test the next morning at 7? No. No, 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 no. Also, I was kind of... I don't know how to describe it, but aside from friendships, I had a really, really hard time dealing 
with girls. I didn't know, like, I wouldn't know how to ask a girl out. I was so shy. And also because of how strict my parents were, especially my mom, I didn't date much in high school. Really? In fact, I think I had maybe one real date and it's because guess what? I had to be driven every, even when I, and this was when I was a senior, I had to be driven to the date. I had to be basically checked in. I mean, I, I was the only kid I knew who was like that. The only one. And there was no way in hell that I was going to have a chance with anybody ever. I kind of resigned myself to the fact that even if I wanted to go to prom, chances are nobody would want to go with me and have to put up with the strict conditions that I would have had to put up with. So I just put it out of my mind. I didn't want it. And not only that, but from what people who went to prom told me, and this is a very common tale, apparently not just here, but everywhere. And to this day is that prom night isn't actually the fun part of prom. The fun part of prom is the follow-up activities the next day, because usually I think out here, the big deal was the next day, everybody would go to great America, the local six flags park. And that's when people would have all the fun. They'd go out and do stuff the next day. So it's like, why would I want to spend all this money, dress as if I'm getting married, get a limo as if I'm getting married? I don't know why people had to do that. I still don't. Pay a butt ton of money for prom tickets for something that's not really all the fun. The fun is the next day. I mean, I can go to Great America anytime anyway. So yeah, I I didn't go to prom. I didn't want to. Even if my date had been my crush, I probably wouldn't have wanted to go. Question 10, did you skip school? No, no, I didn't. And if for no other reason, because where I always went to school for 12 years, from first grade to 12th grade, I went to schools in which if you didn't show up to school and you didn't have a note from your parents the next day explaining why you were out, or at least saying, yes, I know he was out, um, I am okay with this, love Sean's mom, whatever. There'd be a phone call home. And if my mother heard that I ditched school, I'd be dead. I'd be dead. <laughs> so no, I did not skip school, especially because my parents were paying tuition for it. So no way was I going to skip school. Question 11. Did you go to all the football games? When I was a freshman, I went to one football game. And the reason I only went to one was because I didn't really understand football at the time. I didn't know what a sack was. Um, I didn't know what a blitz was. I didn't know any of that stuff. Sophomore year, I didn't go at all. Junior year, though, I went to almost every football game. I, I learned the rules and everything, and I kind of got into it. My dad and I went together a lot, actually. In fact, we may have gone to every single game, now that I think about it. And every single game that year, we won, and we won state, and that was amazing. And I had a couple of friends who worked on the football team. One was a statistician. One was a videographer. There was another one who was a, an equipment manager. And they said, Sean, you got to join us next year. You got you to gotta work on the team. It's so much fun, you know, if, especially if we go to state and we spend the night down there. And you know, it's just all kinds of fun. So I did. And it really was a lot of fun. We didn't get to state that year, though, unfortunately. But senior year, yeah, I went to every game. But because I kind of had to, because I, I was part of the team. I worked for the team. Question 12, what was your favorite class? I'm going to be honest. I don't really know for sure. I really don't know. Definitely not any of the social studies classes because I suck at that topic. Probably not English because I, I it was just all that reading just kind of bogged me down and I, I just needed to get away from that. Not any of the math classes. That's for sure. Not any of the math classes. Definitely not the science classes. 
Hmm, what's that leave me with anyway? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. I, if I had to pick something, if I had to pick just one thing, this is going to sound weird, but I would pick Latin. When I was a senior in high school, I took Latin one. I had taken French sophomore and junior years. And my French teacher encouraged me to sign up for Latin. She said, I think you'd be good at it. So senior year, not only did I take French, but I also took Latin. And my parents did not want me to take Latin. They're like, well, you're taking French too. Aren't you going to get the two confused? Well, I didn't. I didn't. And the thing about Latin one, it was so freaking easy. I could have slept through that class. It was so easy. I got straight A pluses in that without studying a damn thing. It was, I, I just took to it really, really easily. So probably that, if for no other reason, for the easy A's. Question 13, do you still have your yearbook? Yeah, of course I do. Why, why wouldn't I? That's, do people not keep their yearbooks? I mean, they, those cost money. Question 14, did you follow the career path you wanted? I wasn't sure what I wanted. I really wasn't. I was conflicted even senior year. I thought I wanted to study computer science. When I went to college, my major wasn't declared until probably second semester freshman year, and I chose computer science, which I did not stick with because to be a computer science major where I went to college, you had to get a C or better in all the classes required for the computer science major. Calculus 2, that was not going to happen. That was not going to happen, ever. And then also, where I went to college, the computer program sucked. It really did. So instead of transferring to a school with a better program, I changed majors to journalism. See, I didn't have really much guidance whatsoever. At least personally, when I was in high school at the time, the push was just, go to college, go to college, go to college. And this was right around that time when... It was becoming obvious, at least back then, that if you wanted anything in life, you had to go through four years of college. That's not really the case these days, but back then, yes, it was. So we were all pressured to go to college, and I just really wasn't ready for it. Why? Because I didn't know what career path I wanted. I just guessed computer science. Turned out that wasn't it. I did use my journalism major for two or three jobs. But I got out of it. I got out of it. And what am I doing right now? I am a website developer. <laughs> Computer science. And that's actually what I want to do. So I didn't have a career path to want at the time. But right now I am on the career path that I currently want. So at least I have that. Question number 15. Do you have a class ring? Yep. Yep. I, I absolutely. Well, technic I had a class ring courtesy of Jostens, of course. And what was interesting was uh, when they sent the order form for the class ring, it kind of encouraged kids to get the school's official stone, which at Joliet Catholic was Topaz. And I think I was the only one who followed that advice. Topaz is the November birthstone, but I was born in October. Everybody else I knew got their actual birthstones. So people see uh, see my ring, they're like, oh, what is that? I said, it's Topaz. Or, oh, you're born in November? I said, no, I was born in October. Well, why'd you get this? Well, because it's the school stone. I was the only one who did that. I currently don't have the ring because, and yeah, this is, this is probably barf-inducing, but <laughs> I gave it to my wife when we were still just a couple before we were anything further than boyfriend-girlfriend. So she actually has it now. Question 16, who was your favorite teacher? I can't really give this one a straight answer. 
I hated school, yes, but I have to acknowledge that I had a lot of wonderful teachers, and I'm thankful for that. I had some really, really great ones. Of course, if you've been listening to this podcast regularly, then you know that my favorite teacher was not in high school. It was uh, Pat Paul, 7th and 8th grades. But man, I, I had lots of good teachers in high school. Question 17. Did you let her? If she asked nicely, maybe I would have. All right, all right, stupid, I know. Did I let her? No, I didn't, I, was, I didn't do any sports in high school. I don't count working for the football team as a sport. I did the nerdier stuff. I was in Scholastic Bowl all four years. I did math team one year and realized that was the biggest mistake ever, but I got extra credit for it. And uh, Mr. Golf, my pre-calc teacher, he told me he was proud of me for trying. <laughs> I said, man, I really sucked at this. He's like, hey, you gave it a good try. That's all I wanted. <laughs> and what else? Yeah, I was in technically in French club and Latin club, um, National Honor Society, liturgy committee, because it was a Catholic school. And I was in the liturgy music committee. And sure, I did more than that. But yeah, I didn't do any sports. So there was nothing for me in which to let her. Question number 18, did you graduate with a 3.0 or higher? Uh, the answer to that is I pretty much had to. I think that's simply because I think at least the division I was in, uh, where, I, where I went to high school, there were three divisions. There was college prep, there was upper college prep, and then there was honors college prep. And I was in honors, and it was a five-point system in honors, not the usual four. So yeah, I think a three was considered a C average at that point. Question number 19, how old were you at graduation? I was 17. I was 17. I'm an October baby. And the thing about that is, in Catholic schools, the cutoff is different. I don't know if it's different or if there's just plain not a cutoff. It's more like if you can, say, handle first grade when you're five years old, we'll let you in. I really don't know. If I had gone to the public schools, I would have been class of 93 instead of 92, because I think September is the cutoff in the public school system. But yeah, I was 17 when I graduated, which means, of course, that I was 17 when I started college. I, I knew somebody who was uh, 16 when she started college, actually. So yeah, I started high school as a 13-year-old. Wow. <laughs> and question number 20, from which high school did you graduate? Uh, well, I mentioned that it was Joliet Catholic Academy, class of 1992. And honestly, I don't remember anything about graduation day at all, other than it was at the Cathedral of St. Raymond and Nottis, better known in the Joliet area as St. Ray's. It was indoors, but that's really all I remember. I just remember being so relieved that it was over because I did not like I mentioned this before, but I did not like the changes that happened when Joliet Catholic became Joliet Catholic Academy, and I was just happy to put all that behind me. I was not necessarily happy to put my friends behind me, and of course we all stayed in touch, thankfully, but just being done with that school, I guess, I was happy with. A couple of things I do remember. For one thing, my friend Andy, or whatever he goes by these days. Uh, when I talk to him, I don't address him by name because I don't know what he prefers anymore. <laughs> He'd probably answer that because that's what he's been called all his life. But he did not go to graduation because Skinny Puppy was in town. And that was his favorite band ever, 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 ever. I don't know about nowadays, uh, but 
all he wanted was to go to a skinny puppy concert and his mom told him, okay, let that be your graduation present. (laughs) So while we were getting our diplomas, he was at a skinny puppy concert, which he called the most moving experience of his life at the time. So (laughs) good for him. Good for him. And I also remember my grandparents did not come down for my graduation and my mother was pissed off. It didn't really bother me though. My attitude was, well, no, no big deal. No big deal. It's okay. But my mother was so mad. And later on, my grandmother told me that the reason that they didn't come down for my graduation was that she was having surgery. She said it was a minor surgery, but she said, I didn't want your mother to worry because I know how your mom gets when I have to have a surgery, which is true. My grandmother had, I think, blood pressure issues or something for most of her life. And my mother, the nurse, my mother's been a nurse since the 60s. She knows everything that could possibly go wrong. And she knows that when you have high blood pressure and you're about to have surgery, no matter how minor it is, all the possible issues are just escalated at that point. They could become deadly. Those are really the only two things I absolutely remember about graduation day from high school. I remember Andy not showing up and my grandparents not showing up and so be it. So be it. Uh, So was that fun? The longer ago it was, the more fun the answers will be, it says here. So it's been, wow, 27 years. Good night. I don't feel 27 years older. Honestly, I mean, I still feel like I'm 19 years old. I uh, I weigh a little bit more, but other than that, I don't really feel any different. I mean, people will say, oh, I'm old. Shut up. Just shut up. Especially if you're younger than me. If you think you're old, then good Lord, please. So that was my senior year in high school, the senior year of a schnook. So I mentioned how I was kind of a nerd. Uh, Well, I still am really big time. But without any further ado, here's a story about my nerdiness. And I like to call it the Mysterious Phantom Pac-Man Game. I was six, maybe seven years old, when Pac-Man fever started to sweep the country. During my family's monthly trips to the Lincoln Mall, my brother Scott would make a visit to Le Mans Speedway, a pinball arcade that was transitioning into focusing more on video games, and upon that transition it would be renamed Aladdin's Castle. I usually didn't join him at Le Mans Speedway back then because, well, the noise from the pinball machines kind of annoyed me, honestly. I liked playing pinball, but eh, the noise kind of overran it for me. I do have a vague memory of a car ride home and Scott mentioning that Lamont Speedway had just gotten Pac-Man. He didn't elaborate and I didn't ask any follow-up questions. Uh, After all, I tended to, by default, not be interested in anything my brother was into. So Pac-Man, whatever that is, I didn't know. I just kind of brushed it off. But not long after that, I did get to see what this Pac-Man thing was. It was President's Day weekend, 1982. I'm not sure why my parents decided to do this, but we spent the weekend at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois, just a couple of miles from home. Sure, my wife and I have staycations every once in a while, but I always thought that we were much cooler than my parents. But nonetheless, we spent the weekend at the Holiday Inn. It was pretty cool having access to an indoor pool whenever we wanted to use it, and I loved having restaurant food. Overall, it was actually a pretty nifty weekend. 
But what I remember the most about that weekend was spending time in the game room. Actually, in retrospect, it's pretty shocking that my parents were totally okay with all the time we spent there, and they seemed to have a good time. From my memory, there was a pool table in the game room. I really got into shooting pool that night, but alas, we didn't really have a pool table at home, other than a small one Scott had from when he was a little kid, so I never had a chance to get good at it, but it was still fun. I'm pretty certain I spent some quality time at the pinball machine that was in the game room, too. I don't know what pinball machine it was, and to this day, I'm not a huge pinball fan. A couple of years ago, I did go to the Pinball Hall of Fame in Vegas, though, and I played some pretty cool tables there, including this massive one called the Pinball Circus. I think Midway did that one. The story I heard was that someone offered the owner $150,000 for that pinball game, but eh, the owner turned it down. Ever since that Vegas trip, though, I haven't touched a pinball machine. The pinball circus completely spoiled me. Anything else, including those slick new ones that Stern has been cranking out the last few years, they all bore me. But anyway, sorry to get off on that pinball tangent. Um, the game room at the Holiday Inn had a small selection of video games, of course. There was a motorcycle racing game that used handlebars as a control scheme, but I don't have the foggiest memory of what it was called. And please don't throw names at me and ask, was this it? Was this it? I promise you, I won't know. All I can tell you, it was not Hang On. Hang On came three years later. I saw Donkey Kong for the first time that weekend. In fact, I could hear the sound of Mario scoring points all the way in the hotel lobby, and I thought that little sound effect was some kind of notification sound from the front desk or something. And also for the first time, I saw an arcade Space Invaders, a game I played on the Atari 2600 with my cousins and uncle at their house. I didn't know it was one of those big games, as I called them back then. But in the back of the small game room and in the corner on the left was the new sensation, Pac-Man. I was intrigued by what I saw. Something about the colorful characters and the catchy sound effects. The gameplay was easy to understand. Well, so I thought. I played several rounds of Pac-Man, but eh, I didn't last long at all because I didn't know that I had to eat a large blinking dot in order to eat those four critters that were chasing me. The demo mode showed Pac-Man eating monsters, but why couldn't I? I just couldn't connect the two things together, I guess. I just thought it was random times or something. Well, well, I still had fun. But after leaving the Holiday Inn that weekend, I was determined to figure out why I couldn't eat those monsters. I asked the other kids at school. Oh, you have to eat a big dot first, they all said. Ah, okay, okay, that makes sense. So the next time I had a chance to play Pac-Man... I'd go straight for the big dots and eat the monsters, eh, only to realize I was left with a ton of regular dots that I had to eat, and I couldn't clear the board. Ugh. I had to learn to conserve those Energizer dots. Over the time, I learned that you have to eat a big dot to eat the monsters, and you had to conserve those big dots and only use them when necessary, I became obsessed with Pac-Man. I seldom had a chance to play the game, but all I cared about was Pac-Man. If I saw a magazine that had an article about Pac-Man, I zoned in on that article and ignored my surroundings. If my parents had on the nightly news and there was a story about Pac-Man, then suddenly I became very interested in the usually boring, <laughs> to this day, nightly news. One day at Mass, as I was zoning out during the homily, I heard Father Tom say, It's like playing the video game Pac-Man. Suddenly I was wide awake and wished I could rewind the sermon a little bit. 
Eventually, the Kroger store in town got a Pac-Man machine up front by the door. It was likely a counterfeit, but still, it was Pac-Man. Once in a great while, I'd be able to con my parents out of a quarter, but usually I'd end up just hanging out at the front and watching other people play while my parents did their grocery shopping. Before too long, the kids at school were telling me there's a new game out called Mrs. Pac-Man or something. (laughs) Yeah, right, guys, good one. Well, sure enough, next trip to Lincoln Mall, there was a Ms. Pac-Man game at the newly rechristened Aladdin's Castle. And I liked that game even more because it was more colorful, the bonus prize moved around the maze unlike in the original Pac-Man where the bonus prize just sat there under the monster's hangout. From watching others play, I saw that there were different mazes. (laughs) If it weren't for that, I would never know because I was not good enough to clear the first maze, let alone two, so you could get to the second maze. (laughs) But wow... The original Pac-Man only had one maze, and before long, the fake Pac-Man at the Kroger was gone and replaced with a, well, real this time, Ms. Pac-Man. In the meantime, I just eat up anything Pac-Man. Sorry about that eat up phrase in there. That was kind of lame. Oh, well. There was a Stan's ice cream truck that would patrol the neighborhood during the summer. When I'd hear the little jingle coming from down the street, I'd beg my dad for a dollar then I'd rush my butt outside and get the lemon-flavored Pac-Man frozen confection on a stick. I mean, yeah, it didn't matter that lemon never was my favorite flavor, but it was Pac-Man. That's all that mattered. I got Buckner and Garcia's Pac-Man Fever album for my birthday, and I played it all the time. Heck, my brother got a Pac-Man game watch as a high school graduation present, and I was ticked off because I was the one who was the Pac-Man fan, not him. One day, Kroger no longer had Ms. Pac-Man. It was replaced with a new game called Super Pac-Man. It was an interesting twist on the Pac-Man concept. As Pac-Man, you now had to eat keys to open up gated areas in the maze. And with a special super pill, you could turn into Super Pac-Man and become indestructible for a bit and hit a button on the control panel to move at double speed. Wow, this is really cool. When the Pac-Man cartoon aired on ABC, I watched it religiously every Saturday morning. And it was especially exciting if one of those Saturdays coincided with our monthly trips to Lincoln Mall, because it meant that I would start my day with Pac-Man, and later on, I'd be at Aladdin's Castle, playing one of the Pac-Man games. And it was at that Aladdin's Castle where I would often learn of a new Pac-Man game. That's where I played the Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man pinball machine, and later a pinball and video game hybrid called Baby Pac-Man. Eventually, there was another new Pac-Man game at Aladdin's Castle called Junior Pac-Man, which introduced two new features. The gameplay was basically like that of Ms. Pac-Man, what with the hovering bonus prizes, but this time the mazes were so wide that they literally could not fit on the screen. The screen would actually scroll left and right. Whoa! To compensate for the huge mazes, most of the mazes had two extra energizers, and if a bonus prize hovered over a dot, that dot would inflate and be worth 50 points instead of 10 points, and they would slow you down really drastically. If the bonus prize hovered over one of the four-corner energizers, that energizer would be zapped away. The biggest shock of my life, though, was that the first time I ever played Junior Pac-Man, in 1983, 1984, I think it was 83, I actually cleared the first maze, as huge as it freaking was. That was an accomplishment. Also, there was an abomination to the Pac-Man name, a game called Professor Pac-Man. All this insulting excuse for a game was, was a quiz game. Match the pattern, find the difference, 
complete the analogy, that kind of stuff. The only thing Pac-Man about it was there was an animated Pac-Man character in a robe and mortarboard. I guess that was supposed to be the professor. Aladdin's castle had this stupid game forever, but the game never got a single token from me, boy howdy. Before I go on, I have to explain something to truly give you an appreciation to how limited my arcade gaming was. Remember, I was between, say, six and eight years old. My parents never took me to the arcades, ever. There was an arcade in nearby Kankakee called Wizard of Games, and then later on another arcade not far from home opened up called Stargaze. But my parents wouldn't take me. My dad would usually say something like, you have Atari at home and like 20 games. Well, that was an exaggeration. I never had 20 Atari games until 2006. (laughs) Plus, Atari 2600 games, while a lot of fun, they were no comparison to the arcade games. Scott would go to Wizard of Games all the time. After all, he was 10 years older and had a driver's license. And as you might expect, he and his friends didn't want somebody's bratty little brother tagging along. So the monthly trips to Lincoln Mall were my only chances to do any arcade gaming aside from pleading for a quarter at Kroger. Dad would give me a dollar for Aladdin's Castle. No more. One dollar gets you four tokens. And once those four tokens were gone, that was it. No more game playing unless I happened to find an unclaimed token on the floor, which happened on more than one occasion. Or if Scott happened to have an extra token or two and didn't feel like doing any more gaming, he'd often give me his leftovers. And once in a great while, my dad would decide he wanted to try Ms. Pac-Man or something, so that would leave me with only three tokens, but hey. And because I could really only play four games, I had to choose my games wisely. I always allocated at least one token for one of the Pac-Man games. Usually after the tokens were gone and ergo my gaming was over, my dad and I would wait in the seating area outside of Montgomery Ward, just across the walkway from Aladdin's Castle. We'd be waiting for my mom. Most of the time during that wait, I'd actually hang out in Aladdin's Castle right by the entrance and I'd watch other people play games. Well, one day after I used up my dollar allowance and my dad was waiting for my mom to show up, I saw a new Pac-Man game that I completely missed. I somehow didn't notice it earlier when I still had tokens. This game was called Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. What was Chomp Chomp? In the Pac-Man cartoon that I watched regularly every Saturday morning on ABC, Pac-Man's family had two pets, a cat named Sourpuss and a dog named Chomp Chomp. Wow, a Pac-Man game that incorporates something from the cartoon! I watched several people play Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. I noticed that the overall feel of the game and the control panel looked a lot like those of Super Pac-Man, but the gameplay of this new Pac-Man game had a twist. As usual, you controlled Pac-Man through a maze while avoiding monsters. Uh, they're monsters, people, not ghosts. It says so on the panel. Next time you're at a Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man machine, look at the panel. They're monsters. Q-E-frickin-D. But instead of eating dots or food items, there were cards scattered throughout the maze, and instead of eating the cards, you simply turned them over to reveal objects like fruits or an energizer. If you turned over a card that had, say, a cherry on it, then a cherry would appear somewhere in the maze and you had to eat it. If it was an energizer, then instead of having the ability to eat the monsters, this time you actually shot some kind of projectile at the monsters, and said projectile would stun them. The projectile might be noise from a musical instrument, exhaust from a car from the game Rally X, uh, Namco, the makers of Pac-Man, 
they're known for inserting cameos from other video games into their games. But you get the point. All the while, Chomp Chomp from the cartoon would run around the maze and try to grab the objects that you revealed and bring them into the monster's hideout in the middle of the screen. Usually you want to prevent or stop Chomp Chomp from doing that, lest you lose out on some valuable scoring opportunities, but sometimes letting Chomp Chomp steal something and bring it to the hideout actually proved useful in helping clearing the maze. And Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp also introduced something new to the Pac-Man series of games. A never-ending musical soundtrack. It was a pretty basic 12-bar pattern in the key of C, and the music stuck in my mind. I couldn't get it out of my head. But man, a new Pac-Man game and I missed it! I pleaded with Dad for just one more quarter so I could play this game. Nope, you had your chance, Dad would say. You can play it next time we're here. Oh well. I just went back in and watched the attract mode on Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, and as usual, watched other people play it. Well, the next month, as expected, we went to Lincoln Mall for a monthly trip, and again, as usual, my dad gave me a dollar for Aladdin's Castle. But this time, the Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp game was gone. Instead, there was another new Pac-Man game in its place, Pac-Land. Pac-Land was based on the ABC cartoon, but much more so than was Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. It was a platform game this time, and the graphics were no longer just the pseudo-circle and the four-footed monsters, but instead the graphics were copied directly from the cartoon. It was actually like playing an episode of the cartoon. The goal was to have Pac-Man run through different neighborhoods of Pac-Land to get to Fairyland, where a fairy would give him magical shoes that would allow him to literally walk on air, and then you guide Pac-Man back home to his family, where his wife Pepper would be waiting with Baby Pac, Chomp Chomp, and Sourpuss. Throughout the trip, both ways, the five ghost monsters from the cartoon, Inky, Pinky, Blinky, Quiet, and Sue, would try to stop him. Sometimes they'd try to knock him over in a car, or drop little bombs on him from airplanes. Occasionally, Pac-Man would happen upon a power pellet in Pac-Land, which, of course, would give him the temporary ability to chomp the ghost monsters. And as with Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, there was a constant musical soundtrack, but this time it was the theme music from the cartoon. I played a round or two of Pac-Land, and then suddenly the furthest thing from my mind was the elusive Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. Pac-Land was so much better. And in fact, for years, possibly to this day, it was my favorite in the Pac-Man series. Well, actually, I didn't forget Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. It's more like, well, that game is gone, but this one is way better. But I did ask around about it. Nobody seemed to have known what I was talking about. The other kids at school thought I was making it up. For years into adulthood, I tried to no avail to find some shred of evidence that there was this Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp game. Even video game experts I spoke with had never heard of it. Could I have just dreamt it up, and the dream was just that vivid that I remember such detail from it? Hypothetically, yes, but man, I remembered just way too much about it. The control panel, the visuals, the sound effects, and especially the music. Sometime in the mid-90s, my friend and now Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim introduced me to this computer program called MAME. M-A-M-E, an acronym, Multiple Arcade Machine Emulator. Somebody had figured out how to rip the code from arcade games so that you could play those actual arcade games on your home computer. Just about any arcade game I could think of, Jim would show it to me in MAME. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Food Fight, Asteroids Deluxe. Wow, I need to get this thing! 
Well, except the problem was my computer at the time was a stock Amiga 600, and it wasn't powerful enough to run MAME. At the very least, I would need to upgrade the CPU on it. But it wasn't until several years later that I had a computer powerful enough to run MAME at full speed. But when I did, you better believe I was scouring the internet for ROM files to play every arcade game I could think of. The one that I couldn't find, though? You guessed it, Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. It was the only arcade game from the 80s I could think of for which I couldn't find a MAME ROM. But I did go through several ROM download sites and downloaded anything that had the three letters P-A-C at the beginning because, well, chances are it was some sort of Pac-Man variation. And there was one game that stuck out like a sore thumb in all these download sites. I'd never heard of it. It was called Pac-N-Pal. Hmm. Why have I not heard of this one? I downloaded that ROM and fired it up in MAME, and my jaw dropped. It was, for all practical purposes, Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, complete with the music that I remembered very vividly. The only thing different about the game, instead of Chomp Chomp, the character that was stealing things in the maze bringing them to the monster's hideout was some kind of a goblin or something. Hmm. Is it possible that this is actually what I saw? I wondered. No, 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 it was definitely Chomp Chomp, the weird character stealing my cards bright green, and there's no way I'd confuse a green character with Pac-Man's blue and black dog. And when I encountered the Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp machine at Aladdin's castle, I saw the marquee, that's what grabbed my attention, not the gameplay, so I saw the words Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. Eventually, I think it was around 2009-ish, I got confirmation that I was not dreaming up some imaginary Pac-Man game that incorporated one of the characters from the cartoon. I did find a MAME ROM file of Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp. Proof! Finally! But why had I not seen another instance of the Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp game in the 25-ish years between that day at Aladdin's castle and the day I finally found the MAME ROM? I'll get to that in a moment. What about this Pac-N-Pal game, though? Well, it turns out that Pac-N-Pal never reached North America, which I can understand. After all, Super Pac-Man wasn't a huge hit over here, which isn't surprising because it veered a bit from the classic Pac-Man formula. And Pac-N-Pal, and uh, by extension Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, veered even further from the formula. Interestingly, a new arcade that recently opened up, uh, Prince Arcades in Bolingbrook, Illinois, actually has a Pac-N-Pal game. It's actually inside a Super Pac-Man cabinet, but the motherboard is a real, honest-to-goodness Pac-N-Pal. So, not too long ago, I finally got to play the game without emulating it. Oh, and by the way, the character that runs around the maze and steals the cards is named Mir. M-I-R-U. I'm guessing it's pronounced Mir and not Miru. My thinking is that because Namco is a Japanese company, Mir might be a Japanese word with a silent U at the end. That's very common in Japanese words. Speaking of Japanese words, Namco, the Japanese company behind the original Pac-Man, also created Pac-N-Pal. Namco as well did Super Pac-Man and Pac-Land. The other games that I've mentioned, Ms. Pac-Man, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man, and that vomit-inducing Professor Pac-Man, and one that I didn't mention, Pac-Man Plus, they are not Namco creations, but they're creations of Bally Midway, who had the license to distribute Pac-Man in North America. 
Midway did take Ms. Pac-Man to Namco for their blessing, but the other Midway games came out without the authorization of the folks in Japan. And many of Midway's games, including Ms. Pac-Man, were actually just hacks of the original Pac-Man instead of being new games created from the ground up. And because of these unauthorized Pac-Man sequels, Namco no longer gave Bally Midway distribution rights to the newer Pac-Man games. So when the game Pac-Mania came out in North America in 1987, it was distributed not by Midway, but by Atari. So why am I mentioning this? Well, honestly, I probably gave more information than I needed to, but... I'm guessing that Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp was essentially Midway's version of Namco's Pac-N-Pal. Hey, because there was a Pac-Man cartoon on TV, might as well stick a character from it instead of this weird little goblin. That's my theory. And I also have a theory as to why I have never seen it since that day at the mall in 1983. Midway Games was located in Chicago, near the intersection of California Avenue and Roscoe Avenue, not far from Interstate 90. Aladdin's Castle was owned by Bally Midway, and in fact, the sign at Aladdin's Castle's Lincoln Mall location actually read Bally's Aladdin's Castle. And that Aladdin's Castle was a huge arcade, possibly the biggest and most popular of all the Aladdin's Castle locations, at least in the Chicago area. Think about this. Given that Midway Games was located so close to Interstate 90, it's a pretty easy drive to get from Midway Games to Lincoln Mall. You take 90 south, and then when it joins up with Interstate 94, you follow the Interstate 94 split to Interstate 57, and then exit at US 30, and Lincoln Mall is just a short drive down the road from there. Easy drive. It would be very easy to load up a Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp game onto a simple pickup truck, take it over to Lincoln Mall, and deposit it at Aladdin's Castle as a test. See how popular the game is. My theory is that that's exactly what Midway did, found that it didn't get enough plays for Midway's satisfaction, and withdrew the game from the arcade and produced no more of those cabinets. Given that arcade games back then were not built to last, the game was designed to suck quarters out of people until they got tired of it, at which time the game would be replaced, I'm betting that no original Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp cabinets, if there ever was more than the one that I saw in the first place, I'll bet none of them exist anymore. The cabinets and their components were probably reused and repurposed for other games. Then again, given that a MAME ROM exists, that tells me there had to have been at least a Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp motherboard in existence at the time, or else how would you have extracted the code? Unless maybe you hacked the uh, Pac-N-Pal code, I don't know. But whatever the case, I now have indisputable proof that, despite what my classmates at Maternity BVM thought, I was not making this game up. So there. From what I gather, my theory about this mysterious Phantom Pac-Man game, and that's Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, of course, it's apparently correct. I found a website run by someone in California who actually pieced together a Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp arcade cabinet from an existing motherboard. And he talked about how Bally Midway field-tested the machine in a, as he says, Chicago arcade. Maybe he meant Chicago area arcade, which would lend more support to my theory that they only made one unit and the field test was at the Aladdin's Castle at the Lincoln Mall. You know what? I take it back. There will be at least one show note. I will put a link to that site 
in the show notes at schnookpodcast.com. But putting that aside for now, because I started this episode with a bit about my high school life, I'm going to end with a Music for Schnook segment related to music that I got into when I was in high school. I didn't know what to call this particular story slash segment. I was going to call it That's Okay, Jim is Dead Anyway, which is a lyric from a song that a friend of a friend wrote, and I didn't want to have to explain it all, so I decided, hmm, maybe House of Three Doors. But that doesn't make sense because this is going to be about The Doors, the group from California, which has four members, actually. And obviously, House of Three Doors is a reference to a song called House of Four Doors, which is by the Moody Blues. So that really wouldn't make sense. So I guess I'm just going to have to call this segment something a little bit straightforward. I'm going to call it The Doors Without Jim. When I was in high school, you became a fan of either Led Zeppelin or The Doors, possibly Pink Floyd. I tried both Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, but just couldn't get into them. But The Doors? I became obsessed. I didn't so much try The Doors, it's just that I heard their music everywhere. Hello, I Love You and Light My Fire were on WCKG, the classic rock station, all the time. No big shock, both of them were number one hits. I also heard a lot of the songs L.A. Woman, Riders on the Storm, Roadhouse Blues, Touch Me, Love Me Two Times, you know, the usual radio hits. But I think my Doors obsession started because of a weekly feature on WCKG called The Seventh Day. Every Sunday night, Joe Thomas, uh, no Brian Wilson fans, not that Joe Thomas, but Joe Thomas would play five hours of complete albums straight through with no talking between the songs or during the fade-outs. That was perfect for a high school kid like me who didn't have a lot of money to go out and buy all this stuff. One Sunday night, Joe was featuring a recently released two-CD compilation called The Best of the Doors. I got a tape ready for that, and man, I was floored. Yeah, it was mostly radio hits, but except for Love Her Madly, a song I've always hated, the music just did it for me so I sought out the actual albums so I could hear what I was missing. If I like music, I don't stick with those hits compilations. The compilations always miss some great tracks. My first resource? My job at the Joliet Public Library, where I had easy access to thousands of books, magazines, records, and tapes. And if we didn't have what I wanted, I could see if another library did. But if I recall correctly, there were only two albums I could track down via the library. One was a cassette copy of L.A. Woman, The Doors' last album before Jim Morrison left the group. And the library had a vinyl copy of An American Prayer, an album of poetry that Jim Morrison recorded in Paris, with music by the other three Doors recorded in 1978. My next resource, I don't remember what the point was, but I had an assignment in one of my classes, Simply Buy Something. Again, I don't remember why, I don't remember what the rest of the project was, but I had to buy something. And I happened to be going to the Orland Square Mall that night. The something that I bought, a cassette copy of The Doors' Strange Days, their second album, at the Record Town store in the mall. Ooh, but then there was that magical night when my brother Scott, who at the time was DJing part-time at a local bar, brought home boxes of CDs from the workplace. 
among those CDs were the Doors' debut album and the Soft Parade, their 1969 album that was unfairly trashed by many fans for its use of strings and horns. Well, those CDs had a date with my brother's CD player, my boombox, and a Maxell 90-minute tape. I eventually acquired at least copies of all the Doors' output with Jim Morrison, either from the library or borrowing from friends or waiting for Joe Thomas to play them on the seventh day. And of course, after I got a CD player, I would eventually upgrade to CDs. But one day out of curiosity, I did a search for the Doors at the library and found that another location in the library system had this album called Full Circle. Hmm, curious. Was this a compilation I never heard of or something? I put in an interlibrary loan request. Turned out to be an album The Doors recorded after Jim Morrison died. Somehow the fact that The Doors did some post-Morrison recording eluded me. Oliver Stone conveniently forgot to mention that in his movie about the band. Some of the song's titles seemed odd. Good rockin'? Get up and dance? Those sounded a little bit too happy for The Doors. I gave the album a half-hearted listen, shrugged it off, and returned it the next time I went to work. Heck, even the album cover was strange for The Doors. It wasn't the usual posed picture of the band, but a very elaborate painting of animals in what I guess was supposed to be a depiction of human evolution. Other than the fact that it existed, I gave Full Circle no further thought. One of the perks... Shut up, red underline. It's spelled P-E-R-Q, not P-E-R-K. It's short for perquisite. P-E-R-K is a verb that means to thrust up the head, stretch out the neck, or carry the body in a bold or insolent manner. Uh, Sorry about that. Um, One of the perks of working at the public library was that when items got deleted from the collection and tossed into the basement for eventual disposal or possible products in the monthly book sale, we staffers got first dibs. Go downstairs, grab what you want, they'd tell us. I got lucky and found a scratchy but still listenable copy of The Who Sell Out, and a seldom, if ever played copy of yet another album by The Doors that I'd never heard of, Other Voices. On the cover, from left to right, were drummer John Densmore, guitarist Robbie Krieger, and keyboard player Ray Manzarek, and not Jim Morrison. Wow, they did another album without Jim? The album's title, Other Voices, and the rather stern yet resigned looks on the three doors' faces just screamed, That's right, Jim's gone. This is what's left. Hey, it was free and it was in good shape, so I brought it home. And as of this recording, I still haven't played that record. I just could never bring myself to brave what the doors without Morrison would sound like. And at the same time, I couldn't bear to part with such a curiosity. Now, I held on to it, but why haven't I listened to it? (laughs) Well, when you settle down and have a family, as I did, well, family consisting of just the wife and me, you don't set up your turntable in your bedroom. You set it up in the living room where the main TV goes and everything that the entire family uses goes. Therefore, when you want to listen to some vinyl, it has to be approved by all parties who will be hearing it. Whose wife in her right mind wants to hear the doors without Jim Morrison? That's just silly. And when I listen to records when Lisa's not home, I just happen to want to hear other music, that's all. And the Doors themselves had conveniently forgotten that they recorded those two post-Morrison albums. So for a long time, they were nowhere to be found on CD, until fairly recently. 
Some time ago, I saw that Amazon had a single CD that contained both of the albums that the Morrison-less Doors recorded. I figured, eh, what the hey, might as well complete the CD collection. Uh, well, except Waiting for the Sun. I never liked the Waiting for the Sun album. But then I thought, eh, maybe later. So I clicked the Save for Later option. For several years after that, every time I'd place an Amazon order, I'd see that Jim Morrison post-mortem CD under my cart. Should I toss it in the cart now? Nah, maybe later. Well, thanks to a credit card I have that grants Amazon points as rewards, I recently decided to finally bite the bullet, especially because I had more than enough points to cover the entire purchase, so why not? The CD arrived about a week later and uh, sat unwrapped at my computer desk, waiting for me to open it and rip it for the iPod. Yes, I use an iPod for my music listening, thank you very much. More about that in another edition. <laughs> Finally, after a month or two, I ripped the CD and gave the Lizard King free music a listen one day when I worked at home. So, what did I think about The Doors without Jim Morrison? Well, let me get back to that in a moment. I'll give you some background about the album Other Voices. Now, when I talk about The Doors albums without Morrison, I tend to say that the albums are from after Jim Morrison left the group. Not the albums from after he died. Um, in fact, you probably noticed that I did that earlier in this uh, segment. My reasoning was that the band was going on, regardless of whether or not Jim was alive. From my research, I am indeed right. The band started recording other voices in June 1971, the month before Jim reportedly died. And by the way, I'm not saying reportedly to be one of those people who question whether he actually died. Let's face it, the guy was in terrible shape, so even if he faked his death, he wouldn't have lasted much longer anyway. I say reportedly, because the circumstances around the reporting of his death are vague, and the commonly repeated date of July 3rd is often put in question because it's believed he might have died sooner, but his girlfriend Pam just didn't get around to telling people until later. But whatever the case... Other Voices was begun before his death was known, at least, so let's just put it that way. In short, Jim wanted to leave Los Angeles behind and just chill out in Paris for a while, get away from the rat race, and apparently to try to end his alcohol abuse. John Densmore observed that it was strange that Jim would run off to Paris to cut off alcohol, considering how, as he put it, they drink wine for breakfast over there. But regardless... The other three doors felt they still had a lot of music in them, and they didn't want to abandon it. So they started working on other voices in the same home studio where their previous album, L.A. Woman, was recorded. Sessions came to a halt upon the news that Jim died, but resumed after about a month, maybe less. The album came out on October 18, 1971, and reached a peak Billboard chart position of 31, their lowest charting album yet, but still not bad considering the circumstances. As for the songs themselves, there are eight, with Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger taking turns at singing lead. I don't think we ever hear Densmore's voice in a Doors recording. The opening track, In the Eye of the Sun, sounds a lot like The Changeling, which itself was the opening track of the L.A. Woman album. The sound on this track is a pretty natural transition from the previous album, too, and I can even imagine Jim Morrison singing this song, although the lyrics might be a bit too upbeat for his taste. Robbie offers up a nice honky-tonk tune next called Variety is the Spice of Life. Something that stuck out to me about this track was that there's some vocal harmony, 
which until this track was an extreme rarity for the Doors. Usually the vocal was just Morrison, and if the other Doors sang along, it was almost always in unison. The next song is possibly my favorite from the album, Ships with Sails. Uh, by the way, that's spelled ships, W slash, sails. The word with isn't actually spelled out. The song has a classic Doors feel, and it's a great showcase for the Doors musicianship. Very short on vocals, but big on some pretty enjoyable jamming. Side 1 ends with Tightrope Ride, in which Ray sings in a voice seemingly intent on emulating Jim Morrison's louder and more growly timbre. Flip the record over, and the first track, Down on the Farm, starts off sounding a lot like Riders on the Storm, with Robbie Krieger singing a double-tracked lead harmonizing with himself. Emil Richards joins the band on marimba, giving the song a slight Jimmy Buffett feel. But then, the song switches to a bluesy shuffle, with Ray joining in on the vocals. You'd be forgiven if you thought you were suddenly listening to the Morrison Hotel album. And for the first time, I believe, on a Doors song, Jew's Harp. Next up is another tune written and sung by Robbie Krieger, I'm Horny, I'm Stoned, a song that easily could have fit on another Doors album, even with a Jim Morrison vocal. The following song, Wandering Musician, is a good but not necessarily remarkable track that has a long honky-tonk piano intro over a minute, and once again, with Ray Manzarek apparently trying to sound like Jim Morrison. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. The album's closer, Hang On To Your Life, starts off sounding not dissimilar from Sympathy For The Devil, then eventually taking on a vibe not unlike that of The Doors' earlier song, Peace Frog. Ray Manzarek provides an excellent lead vocal, and the track comes to a very, very raucous ending that could go nowhere but the end of an album. So, my overall opinion of the Other Voices album? Not bad. Not bad at all, actually, and in fact, very, very good. I highly enjoyed it from start to finish. Even if there was a song that I started listening to that I didn't like, if I just hung in there for a bit, suddenly the song would change moods and grab my attention. Again, we don't hear a peep out of John Densmore vocally, but both Robbie Krieger and Ray Manzarek perform very nicely in the vocal department. If I had to say whether the album could have worked with Jim Morrison, I'd say Side 2 would be more fitting for Jim than would Side 1. The lyrics on side one have overall a much happier vibe that, well, let's face it, nobody in one's right mind could imagine the Lizard King singing. But what about Full Circle, the second album The Doors released post-Jim? Well, it came out on August 15th, 1972, and it didn't do as well as other voices, peaking at only 68 on the Billboard 200. Once again, lead vocals are split between Krieger and Manzarek, even though John Densmore co-wrote a couple of the tracks as he did on the previous album. Giving the album a listen, though, we immediately feel a different vibe from any other Doors album. For one thing, the opening song's title itself is just not what you would expect from the Doors. Get up and dance! And it sounds exactly as you'd expect a song with that title to sound. A first for the Doors, too, female background singers. Seasoned session vocalists Clyde King, who died earlier this year, by the way, and Vanetta Fields sing in close harmony not only this track, but also on Hardwood Floor later on Side 1, and I think a couple of other tracks, too. Next up is Robbie Krieger's Four Billion Souls. It has an instrumental break that sounds dangerously close to disco, yet similar to the second movement of the song The Soft Parade. 
Four Billion Souls is another song that has an upbeat feel all the way around, but with a strong message about the ecology. This is the most explicitly socially conscious that the Doors had ever been in a song. After that, we have Vertilac, written by both Manzarek and Krieger and sung by the former. I had to look up that word, I have to admit. In Slavic folklore, a Vertilac is a vampire that feeds on the blood of its loved ones. With that in mind, as well as the mention of conjuring souls in the lyrics, Vertilac cannot possibly be mistaken as a song by anybody else but The Doors. It would even be a perfect fit for Jim Morrison. Great track all around. And then we have the aforementioned Hardwood Floor, yet another party-style song. And Side One closes out with Good Rockin', a cover of the rockabilly standard Good Rockin' Tonight. Side Two begins with perhaps the most unusual song in The Doors' entire catalog, a tune credited to all three of the participating Doors and called The Mosquito. With its catchy groove in many iterations of the Spanish line, No Me Moleste Mosquito, the song actually became a worldwide hit outside of the United States. And just when you forget that you're listening to The Doors, suddenly there's a jam after each verse in The Mosquito that sounds like it came straight from The Doors' first two albums. Deep into side two is a song called The Piano Bird, a kind of jazzy song with lyrics that Jim Morrison would probably never want to be seen with, yet still a very solid song in which each of the remaining doors gets to show off his highly underrated skills, and Charles Lloyd joins the party on flute. Next is It Slipped My Mind, a Robbie Krieger song that seems to mash up The Wasp from the Morrison Hotel album with The Grateful Dead's Truckin'. The album closes with a long Ray Manzarek rocker, The Peking King and The New York Queen, which has some uh, pretty stream-of-consciousness fantasy lyrics and a strange spoken interlude that I have a feeling Jim Morrison would have approved of. So that's the end of Full Circle. But the CD I have doesn't stop there. It also includes Tree Trunk, which was the B-side of the Get Up and Dance single released in England. Honestly, Tree Trunk is unremarkable, yet still true to the Doors sound. Full Circle, while maintaining some classic Doors sound, also is probably the least Doorsy sounding album in the band's entire catalog. The presence of Vanetta Fields and Clyde King, the party vibe on several of the tracks, and for probably the first and only time ever on a Doors album, a 12-string guitar appears on a few tracks, and all of that makes Full Circle a completely different listening experience from, say, the Strange Days album. But how do I feel about these two post-Morrison albums? Actually, I like them quite a lot. If I had to choose one over the other, I'd say Other Voices is the better one musically. But both albums actually do demonstrate a natural progression for The Doors, showing a very smooth transition into the early 70s. Alas, they called it quits after Full Circle. Personally, I think these albums would have been bigger successes if perhaps Densmore, Manzarek, and Krieger hadn't called themselves The Doors because, well, let's face it, even though each member of the band contributed something unique and irreplaceable from the start, most listeners expect to hear Jim Morrison if it has the name The Doors on it. In fact, the songs on Full Circle were such a noticeable departure from the usual Doors sound that there was talk of them perhaps not using the name The Doors, but Ray Manzarek said, we're The Doors with or without Jim. What's interesting is, for the longest time, 
The Doors hits compilation albums only included Jim Morrison on the cover artwork. When Jim was still around, every single song on The Doors albums was sung by Jim, with a surprise appearance of Robbie Krieger's voice on the song Runnin' Blue on the 1969 album The Soft Parade. Much too easy remembering when Oh, hey, look at my shoes, not quite the walking blues. Yeah, their absolutely live concert album from 1970 has Close to You, sung by Ray Manzarek. And I think Ray Manzarek also sang on a B-side of one of the singles, too. But other than that, it was the Jim Morrison show. But for me personally, hearing Ray's and Robbie's voices actually helped. You see, I like it when bands are kind of democratic with lead singers. I guess that's one reason I'm such a Beatles fan. There wasn't one lead singer in the group. They all took turns. Same with the Beach Boys, the Monkees, and one of my favorite groups from more recent times, Wondermints. But for the longest time, The Doors was basically Jim Morrison and his backing band. It always turns me off if I'm watching a band that is a band that actually has a name. Yet there's one lead singer and the only voice you ever hear is that of the lead singer. If you're a lead singer and you're the only one who's singing on the songs and you're the only one who's singing the songs and talking between the songs when you do a show, then get real. You're not part of the band. It's all about you. But other voices in full circle excel in forcing the listener who is so fixated on the notion that the doors equals Jim Morrison to pay attention and really get how important each of the other three guys was to the band. What I said about having one lead singer in a band and you would never hear a peep out of anybody else, I think that's why... Try as I often do, I can't get into Jellyfish. Don't get me wrong, there's some really great music in their small discography. But as I listen, and I listen more as I progress into the Jellyfish albums, I find myself thinking, oh, there's Roger Joseph Manning's voice again. But what what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, I guess that's um, the end of this particular segment. Uh, and episode, really. That's the end of chapter 10 of Autobiography of a Schnook. If you wish to reach out to me before the next episode, and after the next episode, I suppose, you can email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My handle is schnookpodcast, and that's also my Instagram handle. When I remember to use Instagram, I post some pictures, but uh, I don't know. I'm also on Facebook, and I don't know what else I'm on. Maybe, uh, well, right now I'm on some meds to clear up what's left of my sinus problems. But other than that, I guess I'm not on anything yet, although they just did legalize um, a certain plant in the state of Illinois, effective this coming New Year's Day, but yeah, that's the future. I'm not on anything right now other than what I said before. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I want to mention this, though. Uh, coming up in September, I'm going to be releasing a special appendix episode, if you will. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, something I've really wanted to kind of present, and this podcast gives me the perfect opportunity for it, and I'm totally excited. It might be a really super long episode, so uh, just uh, uh, watch out for that. It's going to come out, I think, the middle of September. 
And um, having said that, anyway, thank you all for listening. And of course, I thank, as always, my loving wife, Lisa, for her support. And thank you all for listening. And as we finally have summer, celebrate it with the knowledge that the good goes around. And even when summer's gone, it's going to come back. All the best, my friends. My friends.